Let's pray together. God up above, we give you thanks that as we are down here below and speak to you, you hear us. That this isn't a formality, we're actually speaking to you, you're actually hearing. So then, Father, we're asking, please give help. We've read your word, now we need your help to see it, to hear it, to understand it, to believe it, and to live according to it. That we might not just at the end of the day hear this wisdom and so deceive ourselves, but do what it says. We pray that we would once again find ourselves putting all the weight of our hope, all the weight of our longings and our life, even life itself, onto Jesus Christ. We cling to him. If he is not, then we are not. But since he is, we are. And we pray that you would help us to trust in him that way. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and for the last several weeks, we've been hearing this preacher, the preacher that we met in chapter 1, verse 1, as he makes these different observations about human existence. His phrase is life under the sun, life in this planet, life that we all share on this ball called earth, and he's trying to make observations about it. And one of the things he comes to see is that there are things about life that make life feel what he calls hevel, that is, empty, or vapor, or smoke, or meaningless. Death is one of those things, and we saw him talk about that last week. We'll hear him talk about it again today. And in our passage today, he talks about another thing that can make life feel pointless, and that is time, the ongoing, unending march of time. The preacher starts to think about how human beings are time-bound, how we're bound in time, and he begins to think through what that means. You just think of how we speak of time, right? When we think about time, we always seem to be pressed for it, time, right? Or we're running out of it. We never have enough of it, or we lose track of it, or we always feel like we need more of it. Time is like this precious resource, this priceless commodity, and so we're very careful about how we spend our time. We do everything we can to try to not waste our time. We do everything to save some time or to make the most of time. And while time never changes, it's constant, it's a fixed, an hour is an hour, a minute is always a minute, we experience time differently at different times. Sometimes time feels like it's crawling so slow. Just ask a kid strapped into a minivan on a long car ride, right? Fifteen times later of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? How long? Time moves so slowly. Or at other times, time feels like it flew by. Just ask a senior citizen reflecting back on life, reminiscing, and asking themselves, where did the time go? A lifetime went by, and it felt like that. Right? That's the way time is. And the preacher here feels that it is worth our time to consider time. That if we're going to live this life wisely and well, and that's after all why we have Ecclesiastes, a book of wisdom so that you can live this life wisely and well, he would suggest it's going to be worth your while to consider time. So here's what he says. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, please take a Bible out, please open it up, please look at this because we're going to be jumping throughout this passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this is what he says. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, 
a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, if you've been to Seven Mile Road for a few years with us, you've undoubtedly heard this passage before. And the reason is not because one of the pastors, it's because John and Shelley read this passage every New Year. So every time we have a New Year service and we have this service where we reflect on all that God's done for us over this year, this is the passage that they read. And when they do, perhaps like me, you sit there going, that's beautiful. But I have no idea what any of that means. At least that's how I'm sitting there. I've always thought to myself, John and Shelley are so deep and so profound and I have no idea what any of that means, but you can hear it, right? How beautiful it sounds. There's a rhythm to it, a, a poetry to it. You can understand and appreciate why this passage is read at weddings, why it's recited at special occasions, why bands have come and taken these lyrics and turned them into songs and made music out of them. The preacher starts with this statement. It's an opening statement. For everything, there is a season in a time for every matter under heaven. That's his opening line. And what he does from there is he gives you this poem beginning thereafter. And what you get are these 14 pairs, 28 different seasons of life, these couplets where you've got these opposite ends of the spectrum and he pulls these 14 pairs together. And what these pairs are doing together is together they're giving you a comprehensive picture of life. They're giving you a, a picture of the whole of human existence, all the seasons of life. And he pulls these pairs from opposite ends of the spectrum. It's sort of like when we say things like, I looked high and low. When we say, I searched high and low, we don't mean I just looked up here and then I looked down here. It's our way of saying, I looked here and there and everywhere, right? I, I looked high and low and in between. It, it, when we say, from your head to your toe, we don't just mean your head and then toe. We mean your head down to your toe and everything about it. Heaven and earth. That's a way of sort of surmising the whole thing. Well, likewise, what he does here is he pulls opposite ends of the spectrum in various things to give us a picture of the whole of life. He'll say, there's a time to be born and a time to die. And he pulls these things together and with them 14 other pair, 13 other pairs to give us a picture of the whole of life. Here are the markers of the seasons of your life. Here's what the preacher is saying. Life. Life comes with these seasons. Seasons where babies are born and things are planted. There are times to heal and build. Time to dance and times of love and Times of peace. Oh, life is good that way. There is lots of those good seasons in life. But then the preacher also says life also comes with other seasons. Other seasons where people die and are plucked up. Where there's a time of killing and breaking down. A time of weeping and mourning. There's times of hate. There's times of war. See, there's these 
other awful times of seasons of life. And, and in between these seasons that are good and in between these seasons that are awful are a whole bunch of seasons that are in between, all along the spectrum. Neither good nor bad. There's times to look for something and to stop looking for something, to tear something and sow something. In between these ends of the spectrum is the whole of life. And what we human beings are, we're like these pinballs that just bounce back and forth from these various seasons. You find yourself in one season, only in another season for that to be replaced, and you spin back and forth and round and round, and on a circle you go through these various seasons of life. And the preacher, one thing the preacher would hope that you would see is that you would step back and say, do you see that we human beings are bound in time. We're time-bound. And not just bound in time, we're bound by time. Do you step back and see you don't control time? Instead, it seems like these appointed seasons, these times, in turn, control you. That, that these appointed seasons of life, they seem to belt out a tune, and you dance to it. That you find that in life, what you're doing is you're dancing to a tune not of your own making. That these seasons come into life and you can't do anything but respond to them. You don't control them. You are helpless to them. Don't you see, the preacher would say, you didn't decide when you were going to be born. No one consulted you on the matter. No one asked of your opinion. You didn't weigh in on that. A time to be born. And likewise, painfully, we would know, well, you didn't decide when loved ones die. No one consulted you about death. Death didn't ask you of your opinion, right? There's a time for that, a, a thing that you're helpless to. And likewise, you can't pencil in seasons. You can't pencil in a season of laughter. You can't schedule a time of joy. You can't pull out your phone and say, Siri, please block out for me three weeks of joy, right? It doesn't work that way. And nor can you cancel out pain. You can't block out your appointment with suffering. You also can't pull out your phone and say, Siri, would you block out any appointment with hardship for the next three years? It doesn't work that way. Seasons come and they go, and you, like a pinball, bounce back and forth, round and round, on this circle, on this hamster wheel, so it is for all of us. Here's what the preacher's trying to get you to see. Despite our skill and our engineering and our planning and our thoughtfulness and our wisdom, we are all subject to time, to the appointed seasons that move us from here and there and everywhere. And if the preacher could get you to accept that much first, that you're not in control of your time, of the appointed seasons of your life, that you dance to a tune not of your own making, then the preacher would say, okay, since you've gone that far, would you take one more step back? And would you ask a bigger question? It's the question that the preacher asks of everything. He has not grown tired of asking this question. He asks it of everything under the sun. He says, then would you step back and ask the bigger question, which is, what's the point? What is the point of all of this? What is the gain from all of this? What is the point to all these seasons and all the busy activity therein? As you bounce like a pinball from one season to another, not of your making, not of your control. As you dance to a tune, not of your own making. What is the point? Right? That's his question. He's been asking it from chapter 1 onwards. What gain does man have from all his toil under the sun? In fact, that's what 9 says. Verse 9. 
After the beautiful poetry from 1 to 8, 9 breaks the poem with this harsh question. What gain has the worker from all his toil? Tell me, what's the point? What's the gain? What's the net profit? If after all you, like we saw in chapter 1, remember, the sun comes up, And then it goes down and it runs back to where it went up and it comes up and goes down. And all the while it's circling and running but never going anywhere. It's like this treadmill. The seas flow into the river, the rivers flow into the sea, but the seas never get filled. And on and on it goes. And so since life is that way and the winds circle about and your seasons and your times are like that and you're on this hamster wheel and you're on this treadmill, always running, always bouncing from season to season and never going anywhere, what's the point? What does man gain from all his toil under the sun? Have you ever stepped back enough to answer the question of what's the point of all this? In fact, if you look at the poem, doesn't it almost seem to suggest that we act according to one season that we're in and find ourselves in another season doing the exact opposite of the thing we were doing in the season before? That one season has us doing a thing that the next season itself will have us undoing. We'll give ourselves, we'll spend a season planting. Only in the very next season to pluck up that which is planted. Or we'll spend a season building. Only in another season to break it down. Or we'll spend a season breaking down. Only in another season to build up. And his question is, tell me what is the net gain of that? What is the point? What is the profit? What does a worker gain from all his toil? Isn't life this way? One day you feel like your life is finally coming together. And another day it's falling apart. One day you cannot stop laughing. And another day you cannot stop crying. One day you will buy something brand new and bring it into your home. And another day you will take that very thing to the curb and throw it away. One day you will build a house, another day it will be bulldozed over, right? If you want a picture of that, by the way, drive down Roosevelt Boulevard. I feel like in this season of my life, I see Ecclesiastes everywhere. It's like the kid from Sixth Sense who said, I see dead people everywhere. I see Ecclesiastes everywhere. Hugh Hefner dies, I think of Ecclesiastes. I'm driving down the boulevard. You know that old Nabisco building? Some of you remember that from when you were kids. The Northeast smelled like cookies all your life. And now, have you seen that thing? I wanted to stop and take a picture and say, that is the picture of Ecclesiastes. The whole thing is torn down, a bulldozer nearby in utter ruins and rambles. Right? That's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is saying, one day you're going to go to a birthday party and celebrate someone's life. And the next day, you're going to go to that person's funeral. And one day you love life. And one day you hate life. You go through these seasons. They're out of your control. You're this pinball going back and forth. You're on this cycle over and over again. And then eventually death comes. And if that's what this whole thing is, what is the point? What, what is this march of time? And, and time does something else, the preacher notices. You know what else time can rob us of? Of a sense of justice. Because the preacher is making observations about life under the sun, right? And he looks out at this world and he sees injustice. Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. 
So he's looking out, he's making observations about life under the sun, about life as we all know it. And he says, I see injustice, I see wrong, I see evil, I see wickedness where there should be right. But you think of that. Some of us deal with hurts from a long time ago. Some of us deal with pains that were never addressed, wrongs that were never made right, things that have never been dealt with. And what do you do when the only thing that can be said to any of that is, what are you going to do? What's done is done. The past is the past. What are you going to do when the only response to that is, time still marched on, and so you can't go back, and you can't change it, you, you, can't, move, you can't do anything but move on? Phrases and proverbs like, no point crying over spilled milk. You see, time does not care that you have old wounds. Time is merciless. Time marches on, unfazed by the fact that you haven't yet been healed. Time still goes on, and what are you going to do about any of it? And at the end of all those days, the preacher knows this, and this is the point he's built up throughout Ecclesiastes. At the end of all those seasons of life, of that pinball back and forth, of the circle, round and round and round and round, of all these things, both good and evil, the injustices and all, time will eventually bring for us all death. Ecclesiastes doesn't shy away from that, doesn't let you turn away from that. Ecclesiastes makes you look at that. And it feels, it feels like time is in cahoots with death. Because, after all, the only thing standing between you and death is what? Time. It's, it's like time leads the way to it. If death is not here yet, then just give it some more what? Time. That's all it requires. And the preacher knows this is where it's all going for all of us. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all returns. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Here's what he's saying. That's it. Just give it enough time, and you will be reduced to dust. You will be reduced to dust. What happens to the beast that falls in the field happens to every one of us, no matter how important we think we are, just give it enough time and you will eventually become dust. A friend mentioned to me just being at a funeral and watching as the casket was going down, a baby crying from behind. And, and, and it was almost like in that moment, there it is. There's the whole of life. This is how you come into the world, that cry from behind. And there's how you go out of the world, being lowered into the ground. This is the sum of the whole thing. All those experiences and all that labor and all that toil and all those things you did around those laps around the sun. All those emotions. All those things that these seasons brought about in your life. And that's it. You had what? Maybe seven or 17 or if you're lucky or providentially gifted, you get 70 laps around the sun and then that's the end. Hevel. Hevel of hevels, smoke. It's, it's smoke. It's like chasing the wind. It's like trying to catch a breeze and put it in your pocket. It's vapor. It's empty. It's fleeting. It's meaningless. 
But at least for this week, that's not where the preacher takes us. Because at least for this week, he wants you to know there's another way to see the whole thing. Because for this week, the preacher wants you to know it is not enough for you to consider your relationship with time. But you must also account for God's relationship to time. And how God relates to time changes everything. It's not just enough for you to consider how you relate to time. The preacher this week wants you to know God relates to time, and that makes all the difference. You see, some commentators have even pointed out maybe the preacher is hinting at this from the very first line of chapter 3, from the very first words, because the words that the preacher uses in 3.1 is different from the words he's been using till now and he'll use after. You see, till now he's talked about everything that's under the sun, but in 3.1, he says, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Now, maybe that's not a big deal, but maybe the preacher's hinting at something because under heaven is different than under the sun. And for the preacher, at least in Ecclesiastes, heaven, chapter 5, we'll see when we get there, is where God is. That's where God is. That's beyond the sky and above the sun. That's where God is. And perhaps, 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 he is giving you a perspective of not just life under the sun, but the preacher for a moment lets you consider what is life under heaven, under the reality of where God is. Look at time under the reality of God. Time may be like the sky. We all live under it. But, the preacher says, there is one above the sky. There is a God in heaven, and consider time under heaven. And when you do that, I want to say there's three good words for us today. Three words of comfort, three things of good news for you because of God. Here's the first. We can't do anything about the past, but God can. We can't do anything about the past, but God can. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Fear is a word for reverence, awe, worship him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The preacher is simply highlighting for us. Do you see? God doesn't relate to time the way that we do. We are temporal and temporary. We are finite and changing, but God, God is not. God is permanent. God is unchanging. God is infinite. What we do, he has just said, in one season gets undone by another season. But you hear what he said about God? But whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. We build in one season for another season to come and bulldoze it over. But whatever God does endures forever. He's different. What he builds up will never be torn down. He is not in the heavens being bounced around by seasons out of his control. God doesn't sit in the heavens going, Monday was a time for laughter, but Tuesday came and it was a time of weeping. God is unchanging. He's fixed He's permanent. He's infinite. He relates to time differently. He stands outside time, beyond time, above time. And because that is true, that which is in the past is not a problem for God. The past is not a problem for God. Look at 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, 
and God seeks what has been driven away. Pay attention to that last phrase. God seeks what has been driven away. You could translate that quite literally. God seeks what has been chased away essentially by time. God seeks what has been chased away by time. The phrase here is quite literally of a shepherd that goes and looks for like a lost animal or a sheep. And so the the point here is God is one who chases down, who hunts down, who seeks out things from the past. What does that mean? All those hurts that have not been dealt with, all those wrongs that were not made right, every evil that did not face its day in its court, this passage is saying, when what we can at best say is what's done is done, what's past is past, what happened happened, time moves on, no point in crying over spilled milk, God will say, I seek out what is from the past, and I bring it into my future. That it is in the past is of no problem to God, because God will pull from the past. He will hunt down, seek out all that was from the past in order to settle it in his future, in order to deal with it. This is the hope that the preacher has in the midst of this. He says, moreover, I saw wickedness everywhere. In the place of righteousness, there too was wickedness. But 17... I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God will judge every matter. At an appointed time, he will bring from the past all that is left undone, all the wrongs that haven't been made right, and he will judge every matter at its appointed time. You see, this verse in 17 is just a foreshadow of how the whole book will end. The last chapter, last verse, Ecclesiastes 12, final verse says, God is going to bring judgment. And he will judge every matter, whether right or wrong. And listen, when you hear of God's judgment, it's not just the idea that God's going to judge people one by one. It is that, but it's not less than that. Oh, friend, it's more than that. The bigger hope that all the prophets, that all the Bible was waiting for is, one day God will bring about justice. Tell me, tell me, friends, is not our world crying out for justice? Has not just the events of the last year brought about the conversation of justice, let alone the past decades, let alone the past centuries, let alone the millennia, let alone history throughout all of time and space? How many wrongs are left to be made right? How many things need to see its day in court? But here's what the scriptures are saying. God will hunt down, seek out every wrong to make it right. Every injustice will be answerable to God. Every wicked thing will have to face God. And he will make the world right. That's a sober warning for the one who is doing evil. That it will not be buried in time. God will unearth it. And you will answer for it. It's a sober warning. But it's also a sincere comfort to the one who has experienced evil. It's not that you just need to move on. God hasn't. God will pull back and let this thing be made right. If you have wounds and hurts, and if the proverb that says time heals all wounds hasn't worked for you, then Ecclesiastes would say that's because time can't do what only God can and God will. God will heal your hurts. God will give an answer. 
And that thing which haunts you and hurts you still, God has not forgotten it. He will seek it out. And friends, for some of us, if you look at your past, and what pains you is not the wrong that was done to you, but the wrong that you have done. If you look back over your shoulder and you still feel regret, and your heart is torn with guilt and covered with shame, and the truth is you are just as helpless, because you look back and you go, I can't undo what I did. And you can't change the past. And what happened, happened. And time moves on. And there's nothing you can do about it either. And you're just as stuck. Well, thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ, God did something about that past also. You see, the past is not a problem for God, even to deal with your past and my past. Because thanks be to God, the scripture says, before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. Meaning what? Friend, before you had committed that sin, God had already a plan in place to deal with it before you committed it. Before you did the wrong, he had already come up with the remedy before you committed it, before you did the wrong. And so look back, and when regret screams to you from behind, look further back. Because there is the cross there. Before your sin, the Lamb of God died in your place as a remedy for your sin. And then look even further back from the cross and say, before the foundation of the world, before time itself, God had purposed how to deal with your sin. God had figured out a way for your forgiveness before you even stepped into that moment. How far back is this God in his thoughtfulness? From before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain in the mind of God to deal with your sin that would still come millennia later. We can't do anything about our past, but thanks be to God, praise be to God. As Ecclesiastes says, let us stand in fear, in reverence, in awe, in worship of our God who can do something about our past. Second, you are not, we are not in control of the present, but God is. We can't do anything about our past, but God can. Second, we're not in control of the present, but God is. You see, the preacher's point is we're subject to time, but God is sovereign over time. The preacher's point is, look, you can't control the appointed seasons of your life, but there it is. They're appointed seasons, appointed by God, meaning the time to laugh came from God, and as does the time to weep. The time of dancing came from God's hand, as does the time to weep and mourn. See, all these times come from the hand of God. And listen, we can't make sense of it, and yet the preacher knows, verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful, suitable in its time. So here's what that means. Brother, sister at Seven Mile Road, this season you find yourself in at this very moment, this moment you find yourself in, it's not random, and it's not purposeless, but rather has behind it the appointed hand of God. And listen, Ecclesiastes won't insult you with a pat answer. Ecclesiastes won't insult you with empty religious talk. Ecclesiastes won't insult you by trying to give you just some simple answer to a really hard question. Ecclesiastes does not pretend to make an explanation for it. It doesn't say, while you're living here, you'll know why all these things were. 
It does not promise you that. In fact, Ecclesiastes would be the first to join you in your frustration, in your confusion, in your lament, in your doubts. In fact, this is why he says, also he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. Do you hear that? Meaning he's put in our hearts a sense that this thing is, goes back and goes forward much bigger than my present moment. He's put that in my heart. I know I'm not just a beast of the field. I know this thing is bigger than my present moment. And yet while he's put that sense in me, he hasn't let me be like him to step far enough back to see the beginning and the end. I can't see the whole picture. I've got this sense of a bigger picture, but he hasn't given me the sense to be able to stand back far enough and see the whole thing. And so I can't see, I can't make sense of what God is doing in this present window of time. I'm stuck in this moment, and I can't seem to find a way to stand back far enough to see the whole picture from beginning to end. And yet Ecclesiastes is saying, though you can't see it, he is making something beautiful. All things, he has made everything beautiful in its time. This woman named Corey Ten Boom, she was a Christian woman who went through the Holocaust, survived the concentration camps of the Nazis, and she stepped back on her life. And again, not a woman who had it all, a woman who went through the concentration camps. And she compared her life to a tapestry. You ever see a tapestry? It's hung up on museums. It's brilliant art, threads woven together. But have you ever seen the backside of a tapestry? The backside is this knotted mess. Nothing makes sense. All the threads are woven together. No point of the whole thing until you turn to see the front. Corey Ten Boom reflected on her life and she wrote a poem. This is what she said. She said, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him post-concentration camp. I can't step back far enough, but if I could, if I could be like God, I could see the beginning to the end, and I would say he has made everything beautiful in its time. So Seven Mile Road, no pat answer, no explanation for your pain. Since we cannot control the seasons of our life, here's what we can do. We can stop trying to control life and trust in God. That's what Ecclesiastes wants to push you to. You're a pinball. You're going in circles. You can't control this life. You can't channel the wind. You can't catch a breeze and put it in your pocket. You can't manage time. So stop trying to control it and instead trust in God. One preacher said it's, it's sort of like if you've ever seen people at an amusement park going down a water slide. Some of them will stand at the top and they're real tentative and real concerned and they're not sure what they're about to do. And some will get on, but halfway through they'll try to control the pace or somehow slow it down and it's futile to do so. But the wise, the wise do what? They throw back their heads and they throw up their hands and they enjoy the ride. And in fact, that's what he says here. Verse 12, 
I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You know what he's saying? I don't know what the seasons bring, but here's today, so seize the day. Carpe diem. And if you go, wait, 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 I thought we weren't allowed to carpe diem. There's a way to biblically carpe diem. In fact, let me read you a quote. This guy named Derek Kidner wrote a commentary. He says it much better than I could, so just hear this. He says, the preacher's philosophy is also to some extent that all mortal beings should seize the day. It is indeed the appropriate response to the reality of the times that are beyond our control but lie in the hands of God that we should cease to worry overly much about how things are going to work out and concentrate on living joyfully in the moment that is currently given to us. The preacher's carpe diem is an expression of faith, not of self-fulfillment. It is not the greedy consumption of experiences and pleasures before oblivion consumes us. It is rather the patient and joyful embrace of daily life as it comes to us as a gift from God. That's right. That's wise. Another preacher said it this way. You can just hear it. No man can find out the work which God does from beginning to end. The believing response is to throw up one's hands in faith not despair, and have a good time, right? That's, that's what he's saying. Are you in a difficult season, my dear friend, with no pat answers for you? Ecclesiastes 3 promises you it will not be winter forever. Seasons will change, and spring will come, and he will make everything beautiful in its time. And if God gives you grace to step back from whatever season, sorrowful or joyful that you might be, you know what a really believing response today might be? You finish church today, and you go home, and you eat a really good meal, and you drink something sugary and sweet, and you sit with friends, and you bow your head, and you commit yourself again to doing all the good you can in the present while you have it, and you receive this life in its appointed time as a gift from God. He's present in the present. Thanks be to God, he can do something about our past, though we can't. And thanks be to God, though we are not in control of the present, he is. Third and finally last, we don't know the future, but God does. We don't know the future, but God does. We can't change the past or do anything about it, but God can. We're not in control of the present, but God is. And we don't know the future, but God does. Look at verse 20. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all returns. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Here's what the preacher is happy to conclude. The preacher says, here's what I know time will bring. I know time will bring death. And so I know that the future holds death for all of us. Beyond that, the preacher says, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the beast goes down? Who knows what happens after death? The preacher's fine saying that. I mentioned that I spoke with David Sorge after service uh, two weeks ago. David said something that gave me goosebumps. Now, I have to tell you, half of what David says I don't understand. He's so smart that I, I cannot understand most of what he says. So he's trying to explain Ecclesiastes to me. And he says to me, you know, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's like an ethnographer. And I just, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I went, Siri, what is an ethnographer, Right? And then David said, you know, what the preacher's doing is he's observing what's empirical. Siri, what is empirical mean, right? But after I put it together, here's what he said, and it's brilliant. He said, the preacher is giving you life as it can be observed. 
Life under the sun. He's not answering the questions that we don't understand. He's telling you, here's what we can see and touch and taste and smell. Here's what we can know for sure. So any stuff about life beyond death, the preacher doesn't have to answer that. He says, here's what we know in this life. Death is coming. You can hope for life after death. You can wish for it. It could be a good theory. It could be a good comfort to you. But the preacher says, I don't know about any of that. Who knows if the spirit goes up or down. What I do know for sure is that death is coming. So the preacher can say, who knows? But remember, Ecclesiastes is one book in the canon, in the Bible. And we said from the beginning, Ecclesiastes is asking courageous questions that the rest of the Bible will come and raise its hand and give answers to. The preacher is begging the question, can you tell me who knows what happens after death? And the preacher could have never guessed, not in a million years, that the one beyond the sun would send into this world one greater than Solomon. One greater than Solomon is here, is what Jesus said when he arrived. The preacher could have never guessed that Paul in Galatians 4 would say, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born under a woman, to redeem those under the law. The preacher could have never guessed that in Jesus Christ, God himself would step out from beyond the sun and step into life under the sun, and make himself vulnerable to all the seasons of life. The preacher could have never guessed that God would come to the earth and in Jesus, he would step onto the treadmill and he would start walking in the hamster wheel and he would go through the circles and go through the cycles, round and round and round it would go, even for God in the flesh, so that Jesus could say to us, there was a time in my life to weep and a time to laugh, so that Jesus could say there was a time to speak and a time to be silent. So that God himself would come to know there was a time to be born. And more than that, a time to die. But one preacher rightly said this, but Jesus, friends, Jesus does more than experience the seasons of life with us. But now through Jesus, he starts a new season. He steps off the treadmill. He breaks the cycle. Round and round it will no longer go because now through Jesus there is a time to be born. There's a time to die. But there's a time to rise. There's a time to rise. And here's what David said to me. David said, in Jesus, the resurrection has become empirical. That which is from beyond the sun that we couldn't see or touch or hear now has come under the sun so that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, resurrection came to under the sun. Life after death came under the sun and we could see life after death and we could hear life after death and we could touch life after death. In fact, if the preacher lived long enough, he would say, I see under the sun Jesus and therefore I see that resurrection, eternal life, life beyond the grave has come, has broken into life under the sun. And everything is meaningful, meaningful, everything is meaningful. Solid, solid, everything is solid. This is what he's saying. Because of Jesus, there is now a new season to come. And would you hear this, Seven Mile Road? It means that someone has gone to the grave and come out the other side and stepped back into the world under the sun. And now because of him, because of him, if you trust in him, put your hope in him, say the entire purpose of my life and meaning is on him, then he will usher in a season on the other side of the grave. 
Do you know what that season will be? It'll be a time to be born. It'll be a time to plant. It'll be a time to heal. It'll be a time to build. It'll be a time to laugh. It'll be a time to dance. It'll be a time to embrace. It'll be a time to love. And it'll be a time for peace. And it will be that time forever and ever and ever. And the fairy tale will come true. And we will say, and they lived happily ever after. Now we know death is in the future. That's what time will bring. But because of Jesus, we'll say, you know what we need? We just need a little bit more time, and he will return. Death may come, fine, but just a little bit more time, and Jesus will return. And when he returns, that world will come with him. All we need is just a little bit more time. And time is no longer an enemy. Come. Come as much time as possible. Bring Jesus and bring that world with him. So we'd say, preacher, listen, preacher. Yes, time will march on and we're not in control of our life and, and it goes in this cycle round and round and we should ask, what's the point? But preacher, we believe in the one beyond the sun who has broken into life under the sun, who can heal our past, who controls our present, who knows our future. This this Jesus is the one we trust in, and if we said that, the preacher would say to us, amen. That's exactly what I was hoping you would see. Let's pray together.